Whitney. I'm Danielle. And we are the founders of Sakara Life, on a mission to nourish your body and transform your life. Sakara is a Sanskrit word that describes the action of turning your thoughts into things and manifesting your reality. We believe that who we surround ourselves with, what we watch, what we listen to, what we eat, the information that we take in, impacts the way we think and therefore who we are. The conversations that follow are with bold thinkers who have had an impact on how we view the world, ourselves, and what it means to live the Saqqara life. The intention of these conversations is to push each of us to greater heights so that we can turn our thoughts into things and all shine our light a little brighter. We are so excited to be on this journey with you. Welcome to the Saqqara life. What would look different in your life if you loved your body exactly as it is right now? If you're listening to this podcast, you know that body love is at the core of everything we do. Through our offerings, we seek to help our community understand that nourishing your body is the highest form of self-love. Today, we're speaking with the amazing Sonia Renee Taylor, best-selling author, founder, and self-proclaimed radical executive officer of The Body Is Not An Apology a digital media and education company promoting radical self-love and body empowerment. Sonia started her movement, which focuses on fostering global, radical, unapologetic self-love, which translates to radical human love and action in service toward a more just, equitable, and compassionate world. So please join us in welcoming Sonia. Sonia, hi. So happy to have you on the podcast today. Hi, glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yes. Well, we like to start every episode with the question, what is your mission? What are you here on earth to do? (laughs) I think I'm here on earth for a lot of reasons, but certainly one of them, the forward-facing mission is to help people awaken and activate their own radical self-love for the purpose of transforming our world to a more just, equitable, and compassionate planet. Yeah. Wow. It's no (laughs) small mission. And there's so many things I want to dig into with you, but I think to start off, I'd love to just hear like how and why did you get into this work of radical self-love? Yeah, it was certainly not a conscious journey. It was, I would definitely say, a more faded journey than a conscious journey. I had spent 10 years as a performance poet, writing and performing poetry around the world and competing in slam competitions. And I was at a competition in Knoxville, Tennessee with a group of friends, my teammates, and I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who was on the team, and she was afraid that she had an unintended pregnancy. And you know, I say on a regular basis, I'm the nosy friend. Uh, <laughs> I will get in your business from a place of love. And so I was asking, I also have history as a public health career professional and sexual health educator. And so that's a, definitely an area in which I will ask questions about. And so I was asking my friend about her sort of sexual health decisions with this casual partner and why she wasn't using protection. And I wasn't asking in a judgmental way, you know, I was asking in a there, but for the grace of God, go I kind of way. And also, uh, like, I like to say that there were three things present in the conversation that made whatever happened possible. And that was radical empathy, radical honesty, and radical vulnerability. 
And both of us showed up with those three things in this conversation and a transformative portal opened as a result of that. And so my friend who had cerebral palsy said that she wasn't using condoms with this person because being sexual was already difficult and she just didn't feel entitled to ask this person to use a condom. And my response to her very just through me, not of me, was your body is not an apology. It's not something you offer to say sorry for my disability. And in that moment, something shifted. Like those words were as much for me as they were for her. And I could feel that. I could feel it. something wanted to become in that language. And at the time I was a poet. So I was like, well, I guess it's going to be a poem because that sounds hella poetic. Uh, and so I wrote a poem called The Body is Not an Apology. And that poem in those words and saying those words on stages after that and memorizing those words started shaping my reality, started informing me of the places where I was not living in alignment to it. And one of the small ways was that I had a selfie in my phone. I was getting dressed for a show and I really felt sexy and powerful in my body. And I also felt like I didn't have a right to feel sexy and powerful in my body. Like, who are you, fat, dark skin, you know, at the time it wasn't bald, <laughs> but, you know, fat, dark skin, black woman, who are you to feel powerful in your body? And so I hid the picture away and I didn't post it. And uh, about five months later, someone had posted a photo of a plus size model on my Facebook page and it inspired me. I just had a moment where I was just like, I'm hiding and there are other people not hiding. And what would it look like if I chose not to hide? And so I posted the photo and I asked people to post photos where they felt powerful in their bodies as well. And 30 people tagged me in photos. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. Maybe we just need a place where we are unapologetically allowed to affirm ourselves. And so I was like, oh, I'll make a Facebook page and I'll call it The Body Is Not An Apology since I have this poem now. And that Facebook page, much like your journey, started with like 30 people and then 300 people and then 30,000 people. And before I knew it, something very powerful had been made. You know, I read your book, but I don't know the poem you're speaking to. Is it something you can share? Uh, I can. It's, I mean, it's about three minutes long. I mean, I've got time and, you know, sure. I, <laughs> yeah, I would love to hear it. Sure. Let's see if I can remember it. I haven't done Take it Take your a time. While. All right. The body is not an apology. Let it not be forget-me-not fixed to mattress when night threatens to leave the room empty as the belly of a crow. The body is not an apology. Do not present it as a disassembled rifle when they have yet to prove themselves more than common intruder. The body is not an apology. Let it not be common as oil, ash, or toilet. Let it not be small as gravel stain or teeth. Let it not be mountain when it is sand. Let it not be ocean when it is grass. Let it not be shaken, flattened, or raised in contrition. The body is not an apology. Do not present the body as communion, confession. The body is not a spill to be contained. It's not a lost set of keys, a wrong number dialed. It is not the orange burst of blood to shame white dresses. The body is not an apology. It is not the unintended granule of bone beneath will. The body is not kill, is not unkempt car, is not a forgotten appointment to do not speak it vulgar. The body is not soil, is not filth to be forgiven. The body is not an apology. It is not a father's backhand. 
It's not mother's dinner, late again, wrecked jaw, howl. It is not the drunken sorcery of contorting steel, round tree. The body is not calamity. The body is not a math test. The body is not a failed answer. You are not failing. The body is not a hole, not a cavity to be yanked out, tossed. The body is not a prison, is not sentenced to be served, is not pavement, is not prayer. Do not give the body as gift, only receive it as such. The body is not to be prayed for, is to be prayed to. So for the evermore tortile 10th grade nose, hallelujah. For the shower song throat that crackles like a grandfather's Victrola, hallelujah. For the spine that never healed. For the broken heart that didn't either, hallelujah. For the sloping pulp of back, hip, belly, hosanna. For the wild hairs that rose the face like a pack of misplaced wolves, hosanna. For the parts we have endeavored to excise. Blessed be the cancer, the palsy, the womb that opens like a trap door. Praise the body and its blackjack magic even in this. For the razor wire mouth, for the sweet God ribbon within praise, for the mistake that never was praise, for the mistake you never were, for the bend twist fall and rise again, fall and rise again, for the raising like an obstinate Christ, for the salvation of a body that bends like a baptismal bowl, for those who will worship at the lip of this sanctuary, praise the body, for the body is not an apology, the body is deity. The body is God. The body is God. The only righteous love that will never need repent. Wow. It's really good. Thanks. (laughs) I think you know that. (laughs) Um, Wow. I mean, there's just so much to get into. I read your book and I guess I'd love to start with this idea of radical, and you talk about the difference between radical self-love and confidence. So can you expand on that? Like, what is the difference between what you're talking about right now, why I'm crying, why I know what you're saying, it resonates so deeply with me, and yet I'm still just kind of reaching for self-confidence. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, self-confidence is, you know, and don't get me wrong, I'm not knocking self-confidence. I think self-confidence is great. But self-confidence is also conditional. It's fleeting. It's unsustainable unto itself. Like, it is not rich enough to make anything that lasts. You know, I often give the example of, you study for a test and you feel really good and you're like, I got this. And then you go and you take the test and you get your grade back and you're like, mm, I did not have that. <laughs> right? I know exactly what you're talking right? about. And all of a sudden you don't feel so confident anymore. Right. And so it's conditional. It often is impacted by and diverted by the external world or buoyed by the external world. But it is still a condition that is so often reflective of the conditions of whatever it is that we are navigating. And that makes it not sustainable. It it makes it not sustainable for lasting change. It's like, um, (laughs) this is the analogy that came to me. You know, when you have bad knees or sometimes for like arthritis, you have to get cortisol shots, right? And it's like a thing that temporarily Mm, sustains. Like a quick fix. Yeah, it temporarily will make you walk, which is great but it doesn't fix the thing in the long term. And so that's self-confidence. It's a quick fix, but it doesn't fix the thing in the long term. But radical, there are a couple of things about the reason I use the term radical inside of this. The other thing about self-confidence and self-esteem and those other things that is the most important to me 
as much as I, you know, I, I love humans. I appreciate them. I want them to thrive and do well. I would not dedicate the last decade of my life to fixing people's individual self-confidence and self-esteem. I don't get anything out of that. There's no return on investment for me. And I tell people all the time, I don't do this work for any sort of altruism. I do this work because the way it is that we relate to our own bodies impacts my ability to live in my body in the world. A world that thinks that bodies that are only thin are valuable and people that think that bodies that are only thin are valuable impact my ability to live in this fat body. People who think that young bodies are more valuable than old bodies, people that think that bodies without acne are more valuable than bodies with acne. All of those ways that we value and place bodies and identities into a hierarchy impede my ability as a fat, black, queer, neurodivergent, cisgendered woman in the world to live the fullness of my existence. And so my work in the world is to help us dismantle that hierarchy of bodies inside of ourselves so that we dismantle the systems that are attached to it. And that's why it's radical. And that's why I do this work. I feel like every time you talk, I'm like, and that's a wrap. (laughs) You just like, everything you're saying, it's like such truth bombs. And and I can feel it like hit me in this way. The story that you opened with today, and you also opened with it in your book about your friend, I think her name is Natasha. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah. The thing that really, you know, there were so many things that, that struck me about that story, but It was, and you just said it in your poem too, it's like the body is holy. The body should be prayed, you said two instead of four. And what I heard from that story is like, she didn't feel like she had the right to make a boundary for herself because she had to apologize for her body. So how do we start to not apologize? Like, how do we start to think about, how do we start to unlearn and unravel, as you're saying? Because even I think people that bring a consciousness to it, it's still really hard to unlearn the things that you've been taught your whole life and are confirmed every single day out in the world. Absolutely. I think that the the work is, so... In the book, I talk about it as a thinking, doing, being process. And the first thing is that we actually have to become conscious about these thoughts, about the way that we relate to our bodies. What was powerful about that moment with Natasha is that I asked her to consider why she did a thing, right? A thing that she just did. And every day we just do things and we don't consider why we do them or why we do them is so now a state of default that it's just the way that we move through the world, right? I just immediately shame myself when this happens. I just immediately decide that I need to restrict when this happens. I just immediately, without a conversation about where does this choice come from and what has informed this choice? Because underneath all of my work is the premise that if we understood that the indoctrinations that we have around bodies are for the purpose of manipulating and controlling us so that power systems can disempower us and hoard resource, opportunity, and power for themselves, we would be less invested in continuing to operate under whatever it is they say is the right thing. And so if we can start to question that, if I can start to say, oh, Here's this story that I immediately tell myself, and it's not my story. I didn't give it to myself. It is a story that was implanted in me 
generations ago, for a very, very, very long time, people have been passing down this story so that I feel less empowered to go and affect change in the world. I don't want that story anymore. So what do I need to do now? Now I need to think consciously about how that story is running my life. And then I need to take opposite action in the opportunities and places where I see it. Oh, that story is deciding how I grocery shop. Oh, that story is deciding whether I buy these jeans or don't buy. Oh, that story is deciding whether I want these people as neighbors or not. Oh, this thing is deciding so much in my life. What do I get to question and then actively shift in behavior? And the more that we raise it to consciousness and then choose a new way of being, raise it to consciousness, choose a new way of being, we become new people. And Mm -hmm. that's the process that I invite people to go through, through the book. Yeah. And it's not an easy process. I mean, why is it so much easier to apologize than to lean into radical self-love? Because we got a lot of practice at apologizing. <laughs> and we have a world that that rewards us for apologizing, you know, in very paltry and superficial ways. But again, it's the quick fix, right? Like I feel I avoid discomfort in that moment. And that's nice. Or I never have to sit with the ways in which I may feel like I betrayed myself. And so if I never look at it, then I don't have to sit with that. I remind people all the time, like radical self-love isn't a thing you have to figure out how to get, right? It's not a thing you have to be like, oh, how do I, how do I figure out how to love myself more? You arrived here as radical self-love. It's the thing we have to figure out how to get back to, what's on top of it. And that is hard work. Digging is hard. It doesn't matter what you're digging, a hole, whatever it is. It's hard work to dig and get to the bottom of something. And so, yeah, it's definitely, you know, I never present to anyone that this is easy work. What I do present is that it is transformative work that will change your life and which will change our world. And if you're down for that, then it's worth it. Yeah. And I love your analogy to the acorn because I think it speaks to like our innate intelligence and that it's what you just said. It's like, we have it and we just have to get back to having it. Can you, you can do a better job of sharing your acorn analogy. Yeah. So I like to be like clear. It's not my analogy. Marianne Williamson said it and I don't ever want her to write. Ah, (laughs) No, you're right. It was the acorn analogy. And then I loved what you said about her. Yeah. Um, And I want everyone to read the book. So I don't want to give all the nuggets of the book, but you know, I, I loved, I loved that. And I actually, loved how you pointed out what she couldn't see. Yeah, yeah. We're all indoctrinated into these systems, all of us, right? Marion Williamson talks about an acorn, comes imbued with everything it needs to become an oak tree. You don't have to tinker with it. You don't have to do nothing except make sure that it falls on fertile ground so that the seed can get all the nutrients it needs and become. When we obstruct the acorn, then the acorn will not become an oak tree right? If it falls on concrete, if we fracked the land that it was on, it will not become an oak tree. But if it falls where it needs to, it will. Because everything that's inside of it is already wired for it to become the highest version of itself, the most manifested version of itself. We are not any different. I say every time you've never seen a self-loathing toddler, You've never seen a toddler who's like, I just hate my thighs, right? It's not, it doesn't so happen, true. right? They are in love with themselves. They are radically enamored with their own being and radically enamored with the beings of others. 
Humans so are still true. amazing and cool. All of us came through that exact same <laughs> route to adulthood. All of us were once totally enamored with ourselves and enamored with others. But the problem is that we, like that acorn, have been dropped onto concrete, have been dropped into systems of shame, have been dropped into indoctrinations of fat phobia and sexism and ableism and ageism and transphobia and fat phobia. We've been dropped into all the isms and obias, which is not yeah. fertile soil, which is not good ground. And so consequently, it's difficult for the full manifestation of that radical self-love to come into being. And so the work is, oh, why did we put a concrete blockade here where there should be grass and soil? <laughs> and what do we need to do to move that so that we all can grow into our highest forms? That's the, that's the work. Today, we are so excited to tell you about our newest product launch, our Super Seed and Nut Blends. We set out to create the perfect, clean, protein-rich snack to help satisfy hunger between meals or at mealtime and provide a healthy snack to support you when you're on the go. We've created three delicious blends that are seasoned with all organic, of course, and natural ingredients, air roasted without oil, and these come in three functional flavors. Anti-inflammatory, which is my personal favorite, mm -hmm. and it has turmeric, uh, curry, and sea salt. An adaptogenic blend, which has maple, paprika, and ashwagandha. That one's my favorite. And an energy one containing herbs, chlorella, and nutritional yeast, which is also delicious. Mm -hmm. Each bundle contains five individual packets, one for each day of the week to support your busy life. In celebration of this launch, we are offering $15 off your first purchase on Sakara.com. So please use podcast15 at checkout and... We hope you love these super seed and nut blends as much as we do. Oh, and don't forget, each one contains seven to eight grams of pure plant protein. I'm curious your opinion, and I know I don't have to give you permission to be honest, but just we are obviously in the world of, of wellness, and so... I want to be so conscious of this, right? Mm -hmm. Where I came from the dieting culture and Sakara was born out of, I never ever want to diet again. And I never want anyone to experience Sakara as a diet. And so it's hard work because anything that we have a, a prescriptive method, there's no rules. I mean, you eat our food. If you have a glass of wine and a bowl of French fries, like I talk about that all the time. We call that the joy factor. Like do what brings you joy. Mm -hmm. Just make sure you're getting enough plants and nutrients along the way. But I guess like, what are your thoughts on like the wellness industry right now? And what could we be doing better to enable radical self-love? Yeah, I think this is the place where we have to have conversations about how systems show up inside of our best intentions and, and what do we yep. do to dismantle those things, right? Because the reality is capitalism will reward you for doing the thing that society is most comfortable doing, the story that we're most comfortable telling, right? And that is the story of dieting. And what's fascinating is right now we're in this period of time where everyone's become anti-diet without becoming anti-diet. You know, there are all of these new eating systems that are still just diets. I'm like, y'all stop yep. lying. Y'all, it's a no, diet. Totally, right? totally. <laughs> right? Yes. And so I think that one, we have to be 
conscious about what do we mean by wellness, right? And I think for me, part of the conversation, part of the reason why some of these models don't work, these things that are sort of faux diets repackaged, is that they haven't actually interrogated the systems that are attached to them. Because I can't talk about wellness without talking about the conditions of a world that makes us unwell. I can't talk about wellness. Like if if I'm talking about weight loss as wellness, but I don't know what a food desert is and the fact that there are massive numbers of marginalized communities who don't have access to fresh food, don't have access to fruits and vegetables and have to literally travel an hour and a half to a grocery store that might have those things. If we're not talking about that in terms of wellness, then we're not talking about wellness really, right? If we're not talking, like we can't talk about wellness and not talk about systemic racism. We can't talk about wellness and not talk about homophobia or other systems of marginalization because they impact whether or not people are well. And so things that propose again, this sort of individualized capitalistic framework of whether or not we're well, those are, mm-hmm. that to me is the red flag about whether or not we're actually talking about wellness or whether or not we're just in a new prescriptive version of capitalist diet culture. Uh, yeah, you know, it's so interesting. Yeah. It's so interesting. And it's such a good point because I think as we approach what it means and, and help our clients understand what it means to live in a well body, it's like, how do you, I, there's just no possible way I could define what that means for you. Exactly. So, yeah. So like what I'm trying to do, all of us at Sakara, is provide that soil. I love that analogy that you brought because it's actually completely analogous to what we've done to agriculture. Like not to get too literal, um, but, no, we've but completely, <laughs> no. yeah, we've completely like depleted the soil that our food grows in. And so, sorry if I'm getting too meta here, but it's like, this is just completely, what you're talking about is completely analogous to how our relationship to food. It's like, how could our relationships to our body be anything but destroyed if we don't even have a good relationship to our food? If we don't even have a good relationship to Mother Earth. When I gave birth to my first child, I remember reading this line in a book and it was like, we will never have reverence for mothers until we have reverence for Mother Earth. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's like, they're all so connected. It's, it's exactly what connected. you're saying. It's all connected. And I think that's one of the, people often come to my work and it's a conversation about bodies, body image and that sort of thing. And what I am always proposing that you are speaking to right now is all of these systems are interconnected. And actually when we understand, when I understand radical self-love, as an integration of not only my inherent state, but the inherent state of all things, then the work is what are the things that we've built on top of all things that connect us from our inherent worthiness, our inherent divinity, our inherent enoughness, including the enoughness and divinity of the planet, including the enoughness and the divinity of that which nourishes us, including the enoughness and the divinity of the other beings on this planet. When we get that as a whole, That's the transformative world-changing power of radical self-love. That's the ultimate intention of radical self-love. It's not just so that you feel great in your size 12 jeans or whatever the case may be, but that we have an integrated world whose foundations become love. And what grows when the foundation of the world becomes love? 
That's what this is actually about. It's not, like I said, I want people to tend to their individual journey of wellness. But if that wellness is only at the individual level, if that wellness is only about you and yours, and it is not about the interconnected oneness of all of us, then you missed it. You missed the whole point. Mm. Mm. That's so good. And I love what you're saying because I, I find myself being confronted with some of my like core beliefs. So I think that I have always thought that a healthy body. And when I, by the way, think about healthy, I, and typically at Saqqara, we define it as your health is not in your way. It's like, you know, they say a healthy person has a thousand dreams and an unhealthy person has one. And so how do we get to the place where we all get to dream and co-create and, you know, get out of our own way? And I think what I've always believed is health is a way to divinity. And I feel like what you're unraveling for me is if the body is divine, it's like even the act of nourishing and self-care or wellness, however you define it, is a spiritual divine act. I don't know if I'm saying this Mm. correctly because it sounds kind of obvious when I'm saying it out loud, but it's more like instead of it being the path to the divine, it's like the body is the divine. Exactly. I think the distinction is that there is, you don't have to have a path to a place you already are, Mm. to a thing that already is. And what that also allows is the spectrum of identity to be already considered divine. I think one of the biggest detriments of the ways in which we understand health right now is that it excludes an entire world of people who will never by any of these contemporary definitions be healthy, right? Like Mm -hmm. my brother who was born with arthrogryposis and a congenital disability, it will never by any standards currently framed be healthy. Mm. But, and if health is the pathway to divinity, then what we're saying is my brother can never be divine. And that is absolutely untrue, right? (laughs) My brother was born divine and born with arthrogryposis, and those are not mutually exclusive. And so all the ways that bodies exist are already divine. The question is, are there things in our world and things that are impeding the manifestation of that divinity? And what do we do to remove those? But we start from divinity. It's not a place we have to get to. It's a place we already are. You talk about the need to shrink yourself. And until you worded it like that, like I never thought about it that way. Or like constantly trying to make myself smaller. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's such a racket. It's a total racket. <laughs> it's, like, the what the hell? it's the hustle of muscles. It's the hustle of muscles. And again, it's one of these things where we miss the more meta because we're in the literal, right? It's like, no, being shrinking myself is good. And I'm like, put that in any other context, boo. No, it's not. Like, put, yeah. that in, put that in any other context. And shrinking yourself takes you out of your power. So why would an entire society be really, really invested in getting you to shrink yourself. Think about it. Money, money, money. Yes. When you think about it, you're like, oh, I'm being hustled. I'm being Yeah. I know you quote the beauty myth in your book. And when I was in, in high school, we had to do these, like in order to graduate senior year, you had to do these like thesis presentations. And I did mine on the beauty myth. 
And I forget what you quoted in there, but I remember like when I read it, I was like, wow, nothing's changed since I I graduated high school. So like what, you know, I have a daughter and I know it's not just women, of course, but it certainly feels like the assault is on the female gender perhaps, or has been traditionally, maybe, you know, that's very much changing, but like, what do we do? I have a daughter. Like, how do I help her understand how absolutely divine she is? Because when you talked about, like, a, she's a toddler. She loves her thighs. And she, yeah. her thighs are the best things on the planet. Like, how do I get her to keep that? Yeah. I think the first step is that you are a model of that, right? I think sometimes I'm like, I want my child to love themselves. I hate my thighs. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I'm like, that's not going to work, right? Like, that's the reason why my work is started with adults is because we are the ones who dissuade young people from their inherent radical self-love. We're the ones dragging them off of that path. And it's because it is how we've now been indoctrinated, right? And so you being a model of radical self-love is the first place that your child understands it as possibility. And then creating young people who question the messages they receive, particularly when those messages divert from, wait, but my mama said I'm divine. What is this commercial telling me? My mama (laughs) said I'm divine. What is this kid at school telling me? And the challenge with that, I think oftentimes for parents is you have to encourage the thing that is probably the most exhausting, which is A kid that questions everything. A kid that (laughs) constantly asks you, (laughs) why, why, why? But the truth of the matter is, I would say that it's one of the greatest gifts my parents gave me is the ability to ask anything. And they were tired of me. And they didn't know. They were like, girl, we don't know. But But it was just the practice of asking. But it was the practice of being allowed to ask, which meant that I was allowed to look for answers. I was allowed to question the world I was in. Teaching young people to question the messages that they receive keeps them from assuming them as truth about their own bodies and assuming them as truth about the bodies of others. I think that's one of the most powerful tools parents can give, give their kids. You're making me want to be like a radical in every area. I'm Do like, it. I'm like, I'm no longer, I mean, I don't really wear makeup anyway, but getting rid of the heels, no more skirts, nothing that can slow me down. Yeah. I, reti- I retired the heels a few years ago. And don't get me wrong. I mean, and I talk about this in the book. I am unapologetically adorned often. I usually have on lashes and some earrings and I don't have a problem with being in the world in a presentation of whatever it is I consider beauty. The question is, it's not about the what we do. It's about the why. Why am I putting on these heels? Why am I putting on this makeup? Is it because I believe that it makes me some better, more valuable, more worthy version of myself in the world? And if that's the reason why, then what would happen if I didn't? Because when I stop doing it, then I get to brush up against the tension. I get to brush up against the friction of my own indoctrination. And that's where the growth happens. The Body is Not Apology started early on. One of the first things that transformed for me when the Body is Not Apology started was I used to wear wigs and I wore wigs everywhere and I had traction alopecia. So permanent bald spots on the sides of my head from having my hair 
pulled tightly as a young person being braided and things like that. And so I'd had bald spots from the time I was in third grade until I was a grown person. And I had massive hair shame, like shame, 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 shame. And I covered it up and I had fabulous wigs and it was all of this. And I also would like not even let anybody, not lovers, not anybody see me without my wig. And when the body is not an apology came to being, I was like, oh, I'm not in integrity with this thing I'm saying in the world. I'm not being honest with myself. And so I was like, well, what would I have to do? And it was like, oh, I would have to challenge the belief that it is my hair that makes me beautiful. I would have to come up against that. What would I need to do to come up against that? I would have to be out in the world without hair. And I would have to let myself do that. And so I shaved my head and it was only supposed to be a 30 day project. It was one of the Body's Not an Apologies. The Body's Not an Apology was a company before it was a book. And it was one of um, our first projects was called a Ruckus Project, Radically Unapologetic Healing Challenge for Us. Um, it's a 30 day transformational project. And I did the first Ruckus Project and shaved my head bald and was going to be in the world for 30 days bald. That was 11 years ago. I've never grown my hair back. I love myself bald. But it was that. I had to put myself up against that scary thing that I had decided to find whether I was worthy. And then I had to test, am I still worthy without it? And if I'm still worthy without it, because of course I am, because that's my inherent being, then all of a sudden I trust more. I trust that truth more, and which means that I'm willing to risk more often putting it out into the world and seeing what comes back. Because what came back was, of course, you are beautiful however you are, because you are. That's what came back. But I didn't know that until I was willing to go and do the really scary thing, which is test whether or not it was true. Mm, one of my good friends, her name is Betty Kay. She always says, what a, what a blessing it is to be. Yes. That's what this is reminding me of. It's just what a blessing it is to be. And do you find yourself living in radical self-love or is it something that you still have to unlearn every single day? Do you wake up in radical self-love? Yeah. I mean, it depends on the day, you know? Well, I mean, whether I think that I would say the question is whether or not I wake up feeling connected to my radical self-love, right? Because it's, right. it's there. Right. The acorn's <laughs> <Right>? there. <laughs> it's there. <laughs> and as long as we live in a world that's here to erode it, I'm always going to feel days where they're unchallenged, where I feel less connected to it, where the outside voices feel very inside me. And that, of course, happens. It happens far less. And there are areas in my life where it doesn't happen anymore. Like I said, like around my bald head, it doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> I feel no way anymore about, you know, that part yeah. of myself. But I also have today a set of tools for how I navigate it when that comes up. I give an example. I've shared this a couple of times in beginning of 2020 before the world took its sharp left turn into, <laughs> into wherever we are now. I was packing for a tour and I went to put a shirt, you know, I was like, there was this shirt I wanted to take and the shirt didn't fit anymore. And immediately, because I am still very human, all of the stories came up about, oh my gosh, you gained weight. I can't believe you've done that, you know, and all of the shame about my changing body wanted to rush in. But today I have tools. And so I was like, oh, okay, I see. I need to apply some of these tools right now in this moment. So first tool is banish body bad mouthing. Like I'm getting ready to start talking a lot of trash on myself. So let me, let me stop. 
right there. <laughs> I see that happening and I'm going to interrupt that. That is not how I talk about myself. That's not how I talk about this loving, generous body that keeps me alive and carries me through this planet. That's number one. Number two, can I make a new story? Because the story I'm telling myself right now is my body is bad because it's changed. And so what's a new story that I can work with? And I looked at that shirt and I was like, you've had that shirt since 2008. <laughs> <laughs> so time for it to go anyway that show has been in that closet since 2008 and what I I took myself through I said what has changed since 2008 you know I was like oh I've lived in I don't know six different places in two different countries I have had I don't even know how many different relationships I lost my mother I started this company and wrote this book and it made the New York Times bestseller list. Like, honey, a lot of things have changed in the last 11 years. What makes you think your body is not allowed to? Why would your body not be allowed to change when everything else has been allowed to change? Because change is inevitable. Mm -hmm. And I was like, right. I'm okay. I'm tripping. Okay. All right. And I walked myself through that process and I have the tools today to walk myself through that process so that I don't get stuck in it. And that's, that's what I have today. It's so powerful. You're, you're amazing. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you for this work. It's, it's been enlightening talking to you and I, I was going to stop you at one point when you were talking because I was like, oh my God, this is light work. But I'm so interested (laughs) to hear what light work you're going to give to our listeners. Yeah. I mean, I think, so here's the light work that I'm offering today. I think sometimes we forget this is so much about radical self-love is about returning to ourselves. And particularly people who are socialized female in the world are taught that our value is in our self-sacrifice, that our value is in what we don't do for ourselves in service of doing for others. And I think that that is the opposite of radical self-love. I think that that is the perfect way to keep us in servitude and not in our own power. And so I am a firm believer that I give from my overflow, but you can't have what's in my cup. What's in my cup is for me. And so I encourage you to think about what, fills your cup and how you can keep that such that you give whatever is from your overflow and that when your cup isn't full, you stop giving (laughs) so that you can fill your cup. I think there are two things that are important about this. One, I don't want what's at the bottom of anybody's cup. It's the reason we don't like, you know, like backwash is gross, right? (laughs) Literally, it's gross. And so why give people the sludge and grind from the bottom of your cup? That's not actually, that's not an offering, right? That's actually about our own stuff and about whether or not we're valuable if we're not giving, right? It's actually not about the gift. And so what can I do that detaches my worthiness from self-sacrifice, right? And what I can do is I can make sure that I always have what I need such that whatever it is that I give to others is a manifestation of my own fullness. Because what my own fullness is, is beautiful. So it means whatever I'm giving is going to be comparably beautiful. And that's what we should want to offer each other. So I think that's a little bit of light work that we can all do or practice uh, in this coming week. 
so so good and so important and it i love that it requires this inherent act of of radical self-love because you have to believe you're worthy of a full cup yeah exactly sonia you're amazing thank, thank you. you thank you thank you so much for this work and i hope everyone listening if they haven't read your book they pick it up it was moving as moving as this conversation thank you awesome thank you appreciate you that was an incredible episode i did just want to add light work that came to me while i was talking to her and she talked about her hair and that her whole life she had been apologizing for it and what it meant to no longer apologize and this is kind of the heart of what light work really is. It's asking us to confront what we don't want to confront and to just try on undoing it, to just try it on. So I'm asking all of you listening to, and myself, to think about what you're apologizing for. What part of your body are you apologizing for and can for a day or a date or a week can you not apologize? And yeah, stand in your full radical self-love. And lastly, I'm going to end with an incredible Sakara story from Daphne. She says, five years ago, I survived orthorexia. Since then, I've battled with the constant thoughts of food, calories, what to eat, what not to eat, how my body looks, and wishing my body looked different. I digress. I've been eating Sakara for two months now. The space once taken up in my head by negative thoughts associated with food has been completely reset. I'm able to actually enjoy the delicious and beautiful food conveniently delivered to me. I trust the meals have all the nutrients my body needs in a day and none of which it doesn't. I'm more productive and can focus on doing the things that bring me true joy. To Whitney and Danielle, I'm very grateful. In the spirit of Sakara lifestyle, here's some light work. Order Sakara. <laughs> Daphne, we love you. Thank you so much for that beautiful, beautiful, beautiful Sakara story. And I hope you're listening today to this episode because it is so pertinent to our journey. So thank you for being on this journey with us and together. If you have a Sakara story that you would like to share with us, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at sakarastories at sakaralife.com. That's S-A-K-A-R-A-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at sakaralife.com or send us a DM at sakaralife. Don't forget to hit subscribe for the Sakara Life podcast and share this episode with anyone you think needs to hear what we talked about today. And don't forget about the light work. It might feel a little hard, a little uncomfortable, but it's supposed to. The whole idea is that we lean into what's uncomfortable so we all get to shine our lights a little brighter. And we'll see you on the other side, Sakara Lights. Lights.